All right, so last week we began a series, a four-part series called Unshakable Hope. Anybody here last week remember that? Amen, hallelujah. A few people. We began a series of, called Unshakable Hope out of a passage in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, and we began to talk about why we can have an unshakable hope, and it is simply in who God is. That God was the one who made promises to us. God was the one who spoke his word. And because of who God is, the fact that he is all truth and absolute truth and that he cannot lie, we can put our faith, our hope in who he is, that he will fulfill the word and fulfill the promises that he gives us. And because of who he is, as good, as unconditional love, as present with us, ever present in our time of need, with us and and never will forsake us, and that he is what is best for us, we can have an unshakable hope in who God is and what he will do in our lives and through our lives. And so that was where we began last week. Today we're going to pick up in the same passages of scripture in Hebrews chapter 6, and we're going to talk about why we can have an unshakable hope, and it is because of what Jesus has done for us. And today, this whole service already in our worship time, in our communion time, it's undeniable that we, we can have an unshakable hope based upon what Jesus has done. Everything today has been centered around Jesus and who he is and what he has done for us. And we're going to dive into it even more deeply uh, this morning. So Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, or excuse me, verse 18 says, So it is impossible for God to lie, for we know that his promise and his vow will never change. And now we run into his heart to hide ourselves in his faithfulness. We talked about that last week of just knowing him for who he is, not just what he has, not just what he can do, not just what's in his, when his hands that he will give us, but knowing him for just who he is and, and who he is and in his faithfulness, we can have an unshakable hope. And it continues on to say, this is where we find his strength and comfort for he empowers us to seize what has already been established ahead of time, an unshakable hope. We have this certain hope, like a strong, unbreakable anchor, holding our souls to God himself. Our anchor of hope is fastened to the mercy seat, which sits in the heavenly realm beyond the sacred threshold, and where Jesus, our forerunner, has gone in before us. He is now and forever our royal priest, like Melchizedek. And there's a lot of different terminology and and imagery that is used in this passage that we're going to dive into today. This, this book of Hebrews was written to Jewish believers, uh, those who would in a sense be Messianic Jews, those Jews that had received and accepted Jesus as the Messiah, and he is now their Lord and their Savior. And, and the author here is writing to them using historical things, things that were written in the Old Testament, things written that they were taught as children and, and, and they, they saw throughout their, their, their culture and growing up that would make sense to them. But to you and I in our modern Western world in America, we would not even really have any picture or understanding what's being said here unless we, unless we dive in to what those different things mean. 
So we're going to do that for a moment. In this whole book, the author is imploring these Hebrew believers to not stop, to keep going on, that they've often experienced persecution for their faith. They've, they've lost their jobs. They've lost their homes. They've been thrown in jail. Some have even lost their lives for Jesus. And the author here is encouraging them, don't stop. Follow the example of Jesus who didn't stop in, in going to the cross for you. Follow the example of your forefathers like Abraham and, and David and Moses and, and, and Joshua and these different ones of the faith of the past don't stop like they didn't stop and and so here the author is is using things from their history from their life that they would make that would make sense to them and one of them he mentions here is Melchizedek and you're like who that's a mouthful you're right it is Melchizedek and Melchizedek was a, a character of the Old Testament that Abraham encountered after a victory of, 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 of an army. He, he had a spoil with him and, and plunder from the victory. And he's walking out from there and he encounters this person named Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is in a sense a type and a picture of Jesus. Why? Because Melchizedek, there is no recorded beginning of his life and there's no recording, recorded end of his life. His name means king of righteousness. And he's from a place called Salem, which means king of peace. So he's a king of righteousness and peace with no beginning nor end. He was a king and a priest, which totally points to Jesus as the king of righteousness, king of peace with no beginning or end, and who was our king and our priest. So that right there explains who Jesus is for us. And now it also talks about the mercy seat. And I want to show a picture of the mercy seat for you for for just a moment here. This is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was built as a box laden with gold, and there was articles in it. The Ten Commandments were in it, and different things were in there. Uh, The mercy seat is that middle part right in between where the the wings are and, and where the angels are pointing. And the Ark of the Covenant was placed in either the tabernacle of Moses or in the temple. And, and once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the great high priest would take blood in into the Holy of Holies and place it on the mercy seat, asking God to atone the sins of the nation for a whole year. And it says in this passage that our hope is fastened to the mercy seat. It's fastened to atonement. It's fastened to the blood atoning for our sins. I want to show you another picture of where the ark was placed. It was, and this is a picture of Moses' tabernacle. And, and you have the outer court where the, you would go in. There's a brazen altar where sacrifices for repentance would be made. And then you go to the laver, which is water and symbolizing water baptism and the cleansing from sin. Then you would go into there, into the holy place, where just like we experience today, there'd be a table of bread for communion. There was a candlestick that represented the light of the world, just as Jesus is the light of the world, and we are called to be the light of the world. That light was never to go out. The, the, the priests would work to make sure that the light would never stop. The altar of incense representing prayers, that incense was going constantly, that prayers are never supposed to cease, that we're to pray without ceasing. Then, then you would go into the Holy of Holies. This was where the Ark of the Covenant was, and the law, the rod, and the manna were inside of the Ark. And again, only one day a year would the priest go into that place for the atonement of sin. All of it is to point a picture of redemption. All of it is to point a picture towards Jesus. Even the tabernacle itself, not only all of it, every single article, every single piece of it, even the outer skin that was around the wall and the, and the covering of it pointed to Jesus. And not only that, but it also points to you and I as human beings, that we're created with a body, a soul, and a spirit. The outer court representing our body, the the holy place representing our soul and the holy of holies representing our spirit. 
and all of it pointing to those different things. And again, if you don't have a context or a history of knowing these things, some of these passages aren't going to make sense to you, and you're going to go, how can I have an unshakable hope tied to the mercy seat if you don't even know what the mercy seat is and what it represents? And so we're, we're diving into this today, and all of it has to do with atonement and redemption from sin. What is sin? Has anyone ever made a mistake? Anyone ever done something wrong? You knew it was wrong before you did it, but you did it anyway. Come on, let's, let's raise the hand to confession time. If you're not raising your hand, you're qualified for sin right now. You have pride in your life. And God is dealing with your pride. All of us have made a mistake. We're all included. The Bible actually is very kind to include us into this statement to say, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All are in need of a Savior. All are in need of redemption. All are in need of forgiveness from sin. Sin is anything that is against our design of how God originally created us and designed us. All sin is against our design. God did not create us to live in sin or to have sin. He created us to have perfect relationship with him, unhindered, to be able to be in his presence without any uh, need for purification. But because we chose to sin, there was a need for purification. Because we chose to sin, now blood had to be shed for the redemption and for the purchasing back of God's sons and daughters to know God and have relationship with him. There's a story in Mark chapter 7, in Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees come to confront Jesus because his disciples have chosen to eat bread without washing their hands. In a sense, they were ceremonially unclean before they began to eat. The, 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 the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, had all these rituals and traditions for cleanliness that you had to follow according to the law, even, but they even expanded it even more into some ridiculous ways before you could do certain things. Now, overall, the idea of being ceremonial clean is not a bad thing because it created in the people's minds that they had a, a corruption and an immorality, a, a need for cleanliness in their lives, that they had an evil in them that had to be dealt with, that they had to become clean in order to approach the presence of God. But the Pharisees took it too far and began to be very legalistic about it. If you think about it, you and I, whether we know it or not, whether we realize it or not, do this with different things in our lives. If you go out on a nice date, you hopefully shower. And you hopefully put on clean clothes and nice clothes. You go into an important job interview. My hope would be you dress up and look nice for that interview. If you go to a wedding or you're getting married, you're the one getting married, normally you dress up nice and are clean for that type of a ceremony, that type of a moment. There's things in our lives where we realize the, the honor, the importance of it, and therefore we prepare ourselves for that occasion. Those types of cleanliness, rich, you know, things that they had to follow in the Old Testament were in that type of an idea. But the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they confront him, and Jesus points out their heresy and says, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. You do all these things holding on to your, your traditions, but you have no honor for God. What's going on here? I'm going to read for you in this passage why Jesus confronts them on this. In Mark 7, verse 14, it says, And again Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them or makes them unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. 
in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He also described the digestive system. Some of you got that. He went on. What, uh, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. What is Jesus saying here? You guys are all concerned about the outside appearance and working on the outside. The problem is you'll never be clean by only working on the outside. You have to deal with what's going on on the inside. The all sin, all mistakes, all problems, all shortcomings, all failures come from the heart. The problem is the heart. The problem is what's within. And Jesus was saying, your rituals, your traditions, your religion doesn't deal with what's within. But he came to say, I am the one that's the solution for the problem within. I'm the one that will remove the stain and make you clean. I am the solution. And I come to fulfill all of that. That's what Jesus is saying here in that moment. But if we don't recognize that we have a sin problem, if we don't recognize that there is a need for forgiveness, there is a need for a Savior, then there will be no appreciation for what Jesus did for us. You see, in our society today, to tell someone that they have made a mistake, that there is sin in their life, that's a difficult conversation to have sometimes. You know, you go through Jesus at the door, and you say, Imagine you have a backpack on your back, and if I was to put all of your sin in it or all of your mistakes, anything you've done wrong, would that backpack be heavy? No. I did this with a guy in a grocery store, and his wife is right near, near him, and I said, if you, you know, put your, a backpack on, would it be heavy, full of all of your mistakes? I know it is, was for me. Nope, it wouldn't be. And his wife chuckles. And I said, well, clearly she thinks you've made some mistakes. But there's this pride in our Western mindset, in our modern world, that doesn't think that there's absolutes, doesn't think there's an absolute truth, what's right and wrong for you, doesn't mean that that's what's right and wrong for me, that there, if there is a God, he is not transcendently holy, and where we have to give an account for our lives, to stand before him and, and give an account for what we did with how he created us and what he gave us and what he called us to do and to be, that even though there might be a God, he's distant, he just put everything in motion, and now I can do whatever feels right to me. There are no moral absolutes, there is no total right and wrong and yet the whole time inside of me there's an emptiness and I'm weighed down with this feeling that there is something wrong with me there's this guilt there's this shame there's this condemnation but I will not admit that I have a need and that I have made some some have done something wrong and I've made a mistake without a recognition of sin and of need there cannot be a full appreciation for what Jesus did for you and therefore you will live your life with a sense of hopelessness, because everything that you will try in this world will not take away that need, will not take away that stain, that guilt, that shame. See, people try to clean the outside all the time. People try to deal with the outside all the time. They do it in religion, trying to get to God, doing enough good works and performing to hopefully make God happy trying to abstain from things, in a sense classifying religion in some ways as abstaining, no, 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 through everything so that I can try to be holy 
instead of receiving the free gift of grace and of righteousness through Jesus that makes you holy. You can never do it enough on your own strength to be that way. You can't get to God on your own. He came to you in Jesus. People try it in politics. Oh no, you mentioned politics and church. People think that if we create the right social structures and economic structures and things in our culture to deal with society, then change can take place. The problem is they're not dealing with the actual root problem in the human heart. All social structures, economic structures, governmental structures will not change society fully because it will never lead to a full transformation of the person. The problems in our society, the evil that exists in the world, that we want to deny that there is no evil, that humanity is, is in a sense, acceptable and, and is, can, is, is good. I'm trying to say something and it's not coming out right. This is what I wanted to say. That we believe that humanity and human nature is basically good. To have that mindset and just to create culture, cultural societal change through structures of politics and government, but without dealing with the problem within our human heart, it will never lead to full change. Jesus is the only answer for full societal transformation and change. We try to do it through pop culture. We try to change the, the outside and our problems through following people that we idolize in pop culture, people that are famous, and, and we, we try to work on all this outer beauty all the time, and, and there's nothing wrong with fitness and, and, and you know, putting on makeup and different things and whatever you do to, to look good in the morning. I'm saying that there's an, an emphasis that's unhealthy, that's too much on trying to look a certain way, be a certain way, have a certain social status, trying to get to a certain place in, in your finances and in a career, that that might fix what's going on inside of you the problem is is we idolize all these celebrities and all these famous people thinking that if we're like them we'll be happy and the, re the realization that we could come to is they're not actually happy they're empty they're longing for something to fulfill a, a void and an emptiness in them but yet we try to be like them maybe we even do it through church Serving in church and helping the poor and, and doing different things that we think that that will take care of what's wrong with me. That will fix me. Being involved and, and giving to others as noble and as honorable and as good as it is, it is not what's going to take care of what's going on in you. But yet we try this all the time. We're in this vicious hamster wheel and this cycle of trying to take care of what's really going on. There's a vision in Zechariah chapter 3. I want to tell a story in the Old Testament that talks about the mercy seat, that talks about the Day of Atonement. And it's in Zechariah chapter 3. And the prophet Zechariah has an open vision where he sees the high priest at that time named Joshua in the, holy place, or in the, in the most holy place, in the Holy of Holies, before the Ark of the Covenant. And he's standing there before God. And Satan is there accusing him, trying to condemn him. And before I get into the full story, I want to give a, a, a little background to the Day of Atonement and to what the high priest would do on that day and leading up to that day. You see that the high priest, would, before that, that day even came, for a whole week beforehand, he would live in isolation so that he would not eat or touch anything ceremonially unclean so that he could come into the presence of God. He then would the night before, coming to the night before the Day of Atonement, he would not sleep, but he would stay up all night and he would pray. And he would read the word to prepare himself to go into the presence of God. Then he would get up in that morning 
and he would bathe from head to toe and put on a stainless, pure, white linen garment. Go make a sacrifice for his own sins. Then bathe again from head to toe. Change into a different garment that was pure white and, and, and uh, linen garment. Go make another sacrifice for the sins of the priesthood. Then do it again. Bathe again. Put on a different garment again. Then go make another sacrifice, this time for the sins of the people. All of this taking place while through a veil the whole people could look and watch. It was done in public. The people would stand there as he did each and every piece and every part. And they would cheer him on. And they would encourage him to keep going and not stop. Because if he did it right, their sins would be forgiven for that year. And Zechariah has this vision of Joshua. And Joshua's garments are stained and dirty and filthy. And, the, and Satan is in that room condemning him to die. And in the natural, and according to the law, if the high priest did go into that place with stained garments, he should have died. And this is what God says. He rebukes the devil. Basically, shut up, devil. Angels, come take that garment off of him and put on a rich garment that's pure, that's spotless. For my servant, the branch is going to come one day and he is going to remove all stain and all sin in one day. Because centuries later, a different Joshua came. Joshua is Hebrew for God who saves. Yeshua, Aramaic, and then Jesus, Greek, the God who saves. A different Joshua came, and in his own way, he began for a week to prepare for the Day of Atonement. On the night before the Day of Atonement, he stayed up all night in prayer for you and for me and for his disciples. He went on trial. Though he was innocent and never sinned, he was human just like us and tempted in every way, yet never sinned. And he was on trial, though he was innocent. And instead of being cheered and, and encouraged to keep going as the high priest was, instead of everything that that high priest received, Jesus received the opposite. He was mocked. He was cursed. He was put down. He, he, the ones closest to him, the ones that he loved, that were with him for three and a half years, abandoned him, betrayed him, and denied him. And instead of receiving a bath for cleansing, he received a bath, but it was in human spit. And the, instead of receiving a rich garment and, and receiving a, a clean robe that he deserved because he was pure and innocent, his only garment was stripped from him and he was beaten and killed naked for you and for me. To buy us back, to ransom us because he loved us so much. So now, not can, do we have to wait for a high priest to go before the throne of God once a year. Now you and I, we can come boldly before the throne of grace, before our Father who loves us so richly and receive from Him His love and His grace and His mercy. Now we can enter into the presence of God and know the presence of God for ourselves. And not just that, but we become the temple of the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of us. You become a home for God to dwell in you. And now Christ in you is the hope of glory. This is why you can have an unshakable hope based that's attached to the mercy seat because it's pointing to what Jesus did for you and for me in the shedding of his blood. 
what he did for you on the cross. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, God made Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became everything that we were in sin and he took on himself what we deserved and our punishment and all the things that we should have experienced in our death. He took that for him so that we could take what he deserved. We get to receive a, in a gift of righteousness, of grace, to be restored, to, to receive restitution, to be reconciled back to our original value, to be reconciled back to our original place in relationship with God and intent for ourselves of why he created us. We receive through Jesus everything that we don't deserve and he received everything that we did why what Jesus did for us gives us hope number one it's because it's a gift you can't earn it you can't fix the outside of you. You can't fix the inside of you through the outside or even trying to do self-improvement, self-help programs to fix the inside of you. Only in Jesus are you fixed. Only in Jesus can he heal the broken. Only in Jesus can he put you back together. He is the solution. It's not based on your merit. It's based on his. It's a gift that you receive in faith. Number two, why can what Jesus did for us give us unshakable hope because it removes the stain. It removes the stain. Only in Jesus is that stain of sin and condemnation removed. Only in Jesus is there freedom from sin. Only in Jesus is there forgiveness for sin. It removes it, washes us white as snow. We, we, we sang that song during our communion time today. We're a new creation in Christ where all old things have passed away and now everything is brand new in him. You get a fresh start, a new beginning. Everything is brand new. You are a whole new person in Jesus. Number three, because it's available now and it's for everyone. You see, the Old Testament saints, they looked for a day longing for that to happen for themselves, believing that one day a Savior, a Messiah would come, that, that they would be able to experience salvation now that we get to experience. That it's, we don't have to wait any longer. It's for today. It's available now, and it's for everyone. It's not exclusive. It's not for a certain group of people. You can't do enough good things to, to be included in that club. It's for you, and it's for everyone. And because of that, the hope of glory that rests in us in relationship with Jesus, we have that privilege to be the answer and the solution for the world, to take the message of reconciliation, of redemption, and give it away to those around us. And number four, why does it give us hope? Because it empowers us to follow in the example of our Redeemer, Jesus. That when in, in salvation, in redemption, in receiving the washing of, from his blood, we are able to follow in who he is and what he did because we are partakers of a divine nature. We, we receive a new nature in Jesus, a nature that's not bent on sin. Before we were born into sin, you see it in children, you see it in babies, they're selfish and we're all selfish. We have this inner bent for our own self-preservation. But in Jesus, we can receive a new nature that isn't selfish, that's bent on righteousness, that that wants to walk in godliness, that wants to walk like Jesus, and we actually receive the empowerment and enablement through the Holy Spirit to do it. And we don't have to live in sin that we can live like Jesus. And it's not based upon our own ability. It's based upon 
saying, yes, I surrender. Letting go. Jesus surrendered all for you. He gave up every ounce of who he was. He left heaven and all of its splendor and beauty to come to this earth as a man, to die in our place, to take what we deserved so that we could have what he deserved, and, and for us to be able to receive from him all that we need. In him are all things. And knowing him, we can have an unshakable hope tied to what he did for us. Today's been a beautiful remembrance of that. And I, I want, I'm hoping, I'm believing for every person here today for it to be fresh and new and alive today. Not, not leaving this place going, well, that was neat. But transformation taking place. Let's all stand together.